Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. Now, bees are an irreplaceable part of the biodiversity on which we all depend for our survival, and beekeeping also provides an important source of income for many rural livelihoods. So, for this week's industry review, I wanted to find out more about the business of beekeeping and the rewards that we can reap for protecting these incredible creatures. Delighted to be joined by Ken Norton of the Federation of Irish Beekeepers Associations, Hannah Blackmore of Hannah's Bees down there in Little Island in Cork, and another beekeeper, Stuart Hayes, also joins us. Um, Ken, I want to start with you because I know beekeepers are a secretive lot. So can you tell me a little bit about the industry and how it all works? Uh, the industry, basically, as you said, the... the uh, the beekeepers are extremely secretive. They're a bit like farmers. Uh, they don't want to let you know how well they're doing or how bad they are doing. So um, I suppose basically what we would be doing in the in the federation, we would be the main umbrella group. So we'd be looking after about 3,500 members who'd be keeping bees, which would be made up of uh, some 40-odd associations all over the country. So some may have one hive, some may have five hives, some could have 100, 200 hives or whatever. Having said all that, um, as I said at the start of all this, beekeeping is very similar to farming. It is all weather dependent. Right. So because uh, bees don't have umbrellas, if it's lashing rain, they can't go out because if their wings get wet, they can't fly. So in theory then, as regards getting honey, um, if you had we'll say 25 hives, uh, you would have the potential out of three crops per year to get 5,000 half-pound jars of honey. Right. Now, you mightn't get that every year because, as I said, it's all weather dependent. So just to, just to understand that, Ken, so if there's like rain in April and May, say yeah. that we've got two months of rain, That's right. does that mean that you lose one season? Or one of those, uh, one well, of them crops. Yeah, uh, you could. Yes, so, so your so your production <clears throat> will be cut back a bit. Okay, can you tell me about the health of the bees in Ireland? First of all, do we have a native bee? Who who are these bees that 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 perforate our, our meadows and our countrysides? Uh, we would have a native bee now. How many of them you see would be the problem because we have. Several several issues at the moment. Number one would be, you see, people, like, not that I have any problem with any foreigners or whatever, but we would have X amount of foreigners who would be living here. Now, they might be beekeepers in their own country. So as far as they would be concerned, they would prefer to work with their own bees. So does that mean that they're bringing in a, 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 a foreign bee they that, are, that exactly. maybe cross fertilizes with our bees That's, and is that a bad thing? It is a bad thing in, in so much as because you see <clears throat> um, a bit like everything like uh, because we're members of the EU as they would be there's nothing to stop them bringing in their bees so what would happen is then because the honey bee is a very social bee it would associate with another bee although it's it's still a honey bee but it's different type so if they cross then the first generation might be all right. However, the second generation could be narky or it's okay. not suitable for the climate. Well, we're, I'm learning an awful lot here this morning, Ken. Let's talk to our other guests and we'll come back to you in a second. Hannah Backmo um, of Hannah's Bees in Cork. Hannah, you're a, an, an interesting person in that you were 20 
years in the dressmaking business and now you're yeah. you know you're a full-time beekeeper but you also have a, a very interesting range of buy bee bright products tell us about those Yes, yeah, so I I run Hannah's Bees, and as you as you rightly said, I was making wedding dresses for twenty years, and then I just changed. Right. <laughs> I I just wanted to be outside more, and I took up beekeeping, and then I got completely hooked. But as Ken says, I'm a foreigner keeping Irish bees, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I went I went the other way around. Um. So I do. Because, as Ken said, in, in a bad year, you, you can't really rely on honey, you know, on a good crop of honey to pay your wages. So I needed to diversify. So I started making reusable beeswax wraps. I was the first Irish maker of reusable beeswax wraps. Okay. And then uh, making beeswax candles, uh, wood polishes with beeswax, uh, propolis extract and lots of other uh, bee-derived products. Yeah, which which makes a lot of sense, Hannah, in that you've got now a portfolio of products that are all connected to the bee, and again, mm. you're you're maximising your production regardless mm. of what the product line is. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, we had the worst year for honey in over 30 years. So a lot of people actually had to feed their bees going through the summer. It was so dry and, and the flowers didn't produce enough nectar. Um, so in those kind of years, you're relying then on your other products. So the candles, the beeswax mm. wraps uh, and, and flower seeds and all that kind of stuff. That's great. And, mm. t- and tell us this, when you have a good year, where do you sell your honey, Anna? Everywhere. Okay. <laughs> That's good so, to hear. <laughs> yeah. So I, I sell my honey in a lot of health food stores, um, chains of, of health food stores in, in Galway and in other places around. And then I also sell my beeswax wraps and candles in Kilkenny Design right. and Don Thomas. So it's, it's, become, it's become fashionable. I mean, as you know, anything that has anything to do with bees and pollinators at the moment is, is very in in vogue if you like yeah, absolutely. Uh, so pe- pe- it's easy for people to get behind it and 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 it's a good opportunity for me i think with my business then to to be extend expanding my range um and and in that way you kind of lead out to more people absolutely let's talk to uh another beekeeper Stuart hayes Stuart, you're very welcome to the program your family have a long association with bees and beekeeping tell us more Yes, thank you, Bobby. Um, it's wonderful to be here today and speaking to you about it. Um, so for my own um, personal family history, my grandfather and his father before him would have kept bees. Um, they were small-time farmers living in the west of Ireland. And uh, there was at one point where um, the state, uh, under the, the form of the Contested Districts Board, would have promoted beekeeping um, around the country, as you would have mentioned earlier about uh, bringing added income um, to families um, and, and creating um, alternative sources for them. Um, but realistically, my grandfather was keeping bees uh, for himself and for his family. He had five children, um, and it would have been part of um, the food provided for the table. Um, and he went on to that. So when I was exposed to beekeeping from an early stage of childhood, um, I would have there was, always been honey on the table, etc., but he was so, an old so, man at that stage, so my first sort of introduction to working with bees was about nine years of age. But unfortunately, due to ill health, he would have um, gotten out of beekeeping at that point. 
but my mother would have taken it up um, and she had an interest and had always encouraged me to do it but I was always far too busy living life um, and it wasn't until about 15 years ago that I said well I know a lot about the practicality of beekeeping bees but I better learn about um, the scientific end or the theory end right. behind that. So uh, how, how uh, many hives have you got Stuart? Um, so at the moment, uh, it's about 20 hives, and at this time of the year, swarming happens, so there's a lot of increase in, in colony numbers, um, and a beekeeper has to manage that. So he'll either, or he or she will either decide to um, increase their stock numbers uh, based on the, the bees wanting to propagate their species, and they do that naturally by swarming. And you either decide that you need to keep that queen and replace her um, with a new one, or, and you've got two colonies now instead of one, or whether you uh, just allow the new queen to develop and you keep it just at that one stock. Okay, so there's a lot of management around the queen and whether, to, as you say, you, you, you divide and multiply or you get a new queen, is that it? Yes, there's a huge amount of both scientific research but also knowledge. Beekeeping to me is a craft. Um, it's like serving an apprenticeship in a way you, you depend on the knowledge of others and more experience and you know whether it's been through family or taking a, a you becoming a mentee of a mentor um, and I suppose what people see on the, the the shelves of supermarkets is the end product they don't actually see the amount of knowledge the work the skills that go into it and decision making um, you know on the basis of me opening a hive to inspect it I have to almost be like a detective and interpret what I'm seeing before me, um, whether the hive is expanding, contracting, whether there's disease in the colony or not, uh, whether they need food, whether um, they're going to swarm, and I need to have enough equipment and, and, and the steps and knowledge to be able to deal with that, and, right. and also to know what to look for. Right. Um, I said that beekeepers were a secretive lot, Ken, but I think Stuart was letting us into his world there. He was being quite candid about his his his, uh, his work with bees and the challenges that he faces. Oh, by all means, I, um, I know Stuart very well, so it's as I say, we would have several beekeepers who would be semi-commercial. Uh, you know, they, do, they don't want to really let people know... Uh, how well they're doing or how bad they're doing so it's that sort of thing but the majority of beekeepers would be fairly straightforward okay. uh, like other, any business uh, uh, you would have a few a couple of other things I wanted to ask you Ken yes. um, so the the sort of no more may and the rewilding has that, that that seems to be everywhere now where we don't cut down hedgerows and roundabouts Grass at roundabouts is allowed, grow high and all that. Is that making a difference? It is making a difference, because like, I would say like 200 years ago when I was a young fella and had hair, <laughs> like um, uh, we were known worldwide as the land of milk and honey. Right? Because as soon as you left Dublin and you went out to Leakslip or Lucan, you were now in the country. So you would see these beautiful wildflower meadows everywhere. Whereas now... All of that is gone. Yeah. So the reason that you're seeing quite a lot of the roundabouts with um, the wildflower meadow on it, it's not that I'm tapping myself in the back, but I spoke to several different county councils over the last two or three years, 
And but you're there in the light, they don't have to cut the grass anymore. Correct, correct. Of course they're happy. So uh, I got them to do do yeah. away with Roundup, stop using sprays on the roundabouts, all that sort of crack, and instead of spending big money, put in a wildflower meadow. Tell us about uh, the commerciality. You mentioned commercial beekeepers yeah. there. It, it's It sounds to me like it's a labour of love, it's something you do as a passion, but to be in it as a business is... Probably not for the faint-hearted. Um, it's it's not really for the faint-hearted, as you say, because you see... Uh, the, there's, there's a lot more of stuff can go wrong. Yeah. Exactly. There's more to be keeping than honey. Yeah. It's, it's not all about honey. And you have, you'll have good years and bad years, so it all depends how well uh, you manage your stock. And then like, you may have a queen that's... Basically, the way it works is a queen should lay 1,500 eggs a day. So that's 10,000 a week. So it'll be 21 days again they come out. Yeah. So in the meantime, you still need enough of bees to keep everything uh, moving along inside. So if the weather changes then, as I said, because bees don't have umbrellas, um, if they can't get out there because their wings get wet, they will need to have enough of stores in stock. So the, the main issue is with fairly newish beekeepers is to try and resist the temptation to take too much honey away from them. Yeah. Uh, because obviously over the winter there's no crops out, there's nothing, so they still need to live in their stores. So a bit like ourselves, uh, we go to the shop once a week or twice a week or whatever, so if the bad weather's coming then we'll stock up for three or four weeks because we're not sure whether we will get out the yeah. snow or we won't. So it's, it's basically the same with your bees, you have to judge it. Much will take away. Hannah, back to you there. It's uh, you're you're a sole operator there, so you're doing everything yourself. How many hives are you managing? So I I keep usually between fifty and seventy hives. But wow. as as, Stu- as Stuart said, now is swarming season, so I'm rapidly increasing my numbers. <laughs> and um, tell me, it, when 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 you get swarming, is that uh, is that a stressful time? Like if they go into a neighbor's garden or something like that, is is that a problem for you? It was when I was a beginner, but right. uh, th- thankfully I'm a lot better at it now, so my bees don't swarm that much. Uh, but uh, it, but it's hugely labour intensive this time of year. Uh, it, there's a lot, a lot of lifting, a lot of time. Whenever when the weather gets nice and everybody else, you know, gets their swimming togs and heads to the beach, we light our smoker, put on our bee suit and our wellies, and go out and work in the sunshine. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's lifting. It's 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 checking every, that everything is fine because of course we need all those bees inside in the hives so that we can have a, a crop of honey when yeah. the honey flow comes in a few weeks. Yeah. T- tell me when was the last time you got stung, Hannah? Oh, uh, last week definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so would a week go by without you getting a sting? No, would you get stung uh, no, most no. weeks? I get stung most days actually. <laughs> oh, but, no. Uh, <laughs> No way. But I, I, I don't I don't I don't set out to be it's just a hazard of the trade really. But it's as they say, it's the anticipation of the sting is much worse than the sting itself. Wow. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, you, and what about you, Stuart? When's the last time you got stung? Uh multiple times in the last few days. <laughs> right. Um it, it's an occupational hazard unfortunately. Um the bees are trying to defend their colony against an invader and you know, they developed about five million years ago into um, 
what they are as a species now, uh, and they split away from you know originality, uh, the common cousins, the wasps. Um, but this is their defense mechanism, and it's you know uh, as as it has been alluded to, having experience and somebody there to tell you why the bees are stinging you. Are they hungry? Are they queenless? Um, is the you know is the food stores low? Um, it's uh, it's about control as well. You know having ease of movement and being gentle with them. And, yeah, and, I, I and presume if you smoke. if you don't see a bee or whatever, it's not that they intentionally sting you, but you just don't see one and you obviously might crush it or something and you end up getting yeah. getting stung. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. wasps there, Stuart. Um, are they the enemy of the bee? Yes and no. They're a part of the environment mm-hmm. and very, very necessary part. They actually control a lot of other insects that uh, people wouldn't like, so blue bottles, etc., um, they're generally not problems to beekeepers until um, the natural food sources of the environment uh, diminish towards the end of the season. So I'm talking about late July, early August. And that's when people will suddenly interact with them because they're having their barbecues and there's an annoying wasp buzzing around them trying to get at their sugary drink or their nice um, yeah. beer or whatever. And that's where people just associate the stings of wasps as the same as the stings from honeybee. Honeybees aren't interested in beers or sugars or barbecues, and they generally don't interact with, with people. It's only as you literally say, Bobby, if you put a bit of pressure on a bee, as in you crush it inadvertently or step on it in, in, yeah. on a flower when it's trying to gather its nectar source. Um, so no, wasps aren't a problem for beekeepers, except when it comes to the autumn. And then they see the honey that the bees have gathered over the summer as a great opportunity to have a little of their hard work and rob it from them. And and I said to you, they eat um, uh, blue bottles. Uh, they will e- easily um, take young bees from the colony as well as a food source because wasps are meat eaters as well as, uh, you know... Very, very interesting you say that. And again, I always used to associate wasps at around September time but I noticed a number of them around in, in May this year. Is that, again, just climate change, or what is that? We had a very wet spring, um, and it, it was detrimental to, to all of the pollinators, whether it's the wild bumblebees or the, the, the solitary bees. So we're very close to, to looking at what is happening and if they've got enough support and, and uh, weather and, and uh, natural okay. um, flowers. But the, the wasps themselves are around because they're coming out of hibernation later because of the wet spring. Okay. Ken, I wanted and to come... I'm oh, sorry, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, yeah. Stuart. Um, I know, I was only going to say what you're going to see early on in the year, whether it's the, the very big bumblebees or um, big wasps, they're generally the queens that are going to oh, okay. start their new colony through the season. You won't see them after that. What you're going to see after that is their daughters that are the foragers and workers. Right. Um, well, there was a few of them in my garden there last month, I can tell you. So, <laughs> you, must, you must have good attractions for them. Back to you, Ken. Um, I wanted to ask you about honey on the supermarket shelves that we see. I know we have a lot of imports of honey, but as the only foodstuff that doesn't go off, which I believe honey actually is, right. that, it, that, it, that surely there is a way that if we could stockpile honey in the good years, that we could get to a point where we could sustain or produce enough par- uh, honey for the marketplace. Enough is that, air. Yeah, is that ever possible? Um, 
it, it would be possible, but you see, there again, you see, we would need intervention from the government, the likes of Board Namona, all this sort of thing. We would need to be, start of it, apart from rewilding, we would need to be replanting. So yeah. we would need to be having native Irish trees planted. And I, and I assume we'd need a few, like, very big commercial beekeepers, maybe, that we don't have. Uh, well, it's not so much... Uh, like we would need commercial beekeepers. You see, it's like at the moment, let's say there's 10 of us in an apartment, 10 people in the apartment. Now we've X amount of food in there for the 10 people to eat. So if five more move in and we don't increase our stockpile of food, yeah, somebody's going to have a cutback. Okay. So basically getting back to what I said... So and in I, theory it might be possible, but in, in reality it isn't. It, it wouldn't be, no, right. because we would never be at the moment in a position to supply the supermarkets with 10,000 jars of honey five days a week or the hard that sort of yeah. thing. So, and like even, is it not the kind of product that, you know, that we should be respectful maybe of the seasons, that it's a product that you can get, that you don't, can't get all year round. Well, we should be, but you see, there again, part of it gets back to money because, as I said, um, off air, like you can go into a supermarket and you can buy an eight ounce jar of honey for two fifty. Yeah. Whereas the beekeeper, he would be looking for at least seven fifty because it is one hundred percent pure honey. honey. Yeah. And you're buying it from a beekeeper, so it's a matter of. Do you, are you prepared to pay a little extra and get the real thing? Or are you prepared to pay less for price and get an import? And not that all imports are fake, but... And are the New Zealanders doing this any better <laughs> than, than we are with, the, with well, their the Maluka New, honey? The New Zealanders, the problem with that is, you see, worldwide, they would... See, it's the only place where the Maluka honey is produced over in New Zealand. Right. So they tell us roughly... Two and a half ton of uh, manuka honey would be produced. Right. However, there would be at least ten thousand ton of honey, of manuka honey, called manuka, on sale all over the world. Yeah. So it's like anything. It's about. Yeah. So in the top five, in the top five frauds in the world, according to the FAI, the uh, number one is whiskey, number two is olive oil, and number three is honey. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you know the old adage of never think you're smarter than the consumer. Exactly. There's always going to be somebody who's going to try and pass off uh, something as something else. But it will be because, like number five, funny enough, in the on the FBI list is Coca-Cola. Right. Okay. And over in foreign countries, they can manufacture an exact replica of the of the bottle and the can. However. It doesn't taste the same. It tastes like castor oil. So as well as being secretive, the beekeeper then is into espionage and all that <laughs> kind of stuff as well. And he has to look. Why do you think I'm up here today? I should be, I should be down in bloom. <laughs> um, maybe last word to you, Hannah, in terms of your business and your business going forward. You've you diversified into a very neat range of bee byproducts and honey products. Uh, where are you going to bring the business next? Well, I, I already started exporting to the States and well Canada done. And, well done. and parts of Europe last year. Um, and I had uh, I had two pallets of candles go out to the, <laughs> the one to Europe, one to States uh, t- this week. So uh, it's, 
you know, <laughs> where do we take it from here? I don't know. I'm just going to keep on going and, and, and see where I end up, basically. It's, I'm enjoying myself so much. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a fantastic business to be in. Not necessarily if you want to make any money, uh, <laughs> right. but, it's, but it's a wonderful lifestyle and, and huge, hugely rewarding. Well, listen, I want to thank all my three guests. You're all wonderful advocates uh, for bees and beekeeping. Ken Norton, Hannah Backmo, and indeed Stuart Hayes. Thank you all for letting us into the secret of world of the beekeeper. <laughs> thank you very much, Bobby. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Down to business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland. Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk.